You are listening to a special episode of the Bondzilla Podcast. This week, we take a deep dive into everything James Bond. The name's Bond. James Bond. Hello, everybody, and welcome to uh, another deep dive. Uh, oh, excuse me. Oh, excuse me. Wow, <laughs> already choking on some of that, some of the, some of that uh, well, water ex- well, excuse- as we go as we dive deep. As they say in the film industry, "Well, excuse me, princess." No, that's not the film industry. That's the cartoon industry. I may even give you the pass to the television industry, but it's not. It's not the film industry. <laughs> Not yet. Not until they like make a they like reboot the Zelda animated series. Well, it's like one of those like that they um, you know they um, they make the movie and then they like sneak that line in. So there's a somehow. slight little reference to it. Yeah, and, and it's like it's not as animated, but it's definitely going to make you laugh in the theater. Yeah, and then there's going to be the IMDb trivia about mm-hmm. it. So. I was getting into what the deep dive focus of this episode is going to be, and it really kind of comes down to that I enjoyed doing the Bond girl one uh, on our last deep dive and just talking about just the Bond girls and that history and everything like that. And I felt like um, it was just, I wanted to continue kind of having fun with this kind of looking at a specific element of the characters of the franchise. And I thought, well, after the Bond girls, what do people think of a lot of times outside of Bond, outside the girls think about the villains or at least that's what they think they think about. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're going to deep dive into what would you say it is? Would you say it's girls gadgets and then villain? Yeah. I feel like that would be the hierarchy. Yeah. yeah, I think that would be uh, like after bond. It's like girls gadgets and, and villain. Yeah. Which feels like it's also like the name of like a not great um, like bond, like themed bar, like bar or like a, like, like basically one of those like kind of very simple encyclopedia books. Yeah, like, it's girl- not a bad title though. I would go to a bar that said "Girls, Gadgets, and Villains." Yeah, yeah. So anyway, yes, Bond villains. Here we go. Talking about one of the biggest staples in the Bond franchise, but perhaps not as we have discussed many times on the show. Perhaps not the best fastened staple of the bunch. Yes. I, I originally had intended to do villains and henchmen. Right. But Will has convinced me very, uh, very well mm-hmm. um, and very definitively that the henchmen deserve their own episode. Well, the reason I thought that was because people do distinguish a Bond henchman. Like, more. Yeah. Like, you know, sometimes when you. When I did look up these villains, that the henchmen did pop up, but. I would say that when you're talking with the well-initiated, like you know, people don't necessarily really put Gold uh, Goldfinger in the same camp as Objob. Like Objob has like his own like category as like a great Bond henchman. So anyway, uh, yeah. So where do where do we want to start with um, these villains? Well, since we're so excited to talk about them. Again, I just think like you know, like kind of that development and the history and sort of how we perceive the Bond villain. Because, mm-hmm. again, we, we see it as, you know, even when we talk about, like, real-life kind of megalomaniacs in some way, we say, like, oh, it, it seems like a Bond villain thing to do. Or, like, oh, like, Elon Musk could be a Bond villain if, like, in an alternate world or something like that. 
Like it's just like we, yeah, we that? have that kind of cliche of just like we we say people are Bond villains or like Bond villains. I do feel like no, that that's actually really interesting. I, I never thought about it that way. That our shorthand for calling because you're right. I would hear even though I haven't heard that specifically. You would like if you told me it's like oh Elon Musk is like basically like a Bond villain. Like I get it. I get what you're saying. The first like, thing that came to mind. No, no, but it make I would see that because it's like when you look at Elon Musk, he's like you know a man man of industry uh, is doing crazy things with his money, has wacky ideas and of how to progress see, like, a, a the human like race. That like also has like an evil plot to like take over a satellite somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he's definitely a guy who has the humanity is the infection yeah. uh, type <laughs> type plan, Mindset. but. Um, like, uh, yeah. And, yeah, but it's just like we we have. You're right. We have that shorthand for it, and it's like yeah. where, where does that come from, and and how do we get to that point, really? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, okay. Well, why don't we start it from here? Where, what, if we have that shorthand, what what are we encompassing in the definition? Because like in that, you know, we, we talked. We just talked about how we distinguish it a little bit differently from the Bond henchmen. So yeah. how are we distinguishing the a Bond villain? I mean, I think there's the, the 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 easy thing is that it's the main antagonist yeah. of whatever yes. the film is. So that that's like the surface level yeah, uh, I, I, category of yes. it. Um, I would say that that way, but it also I guess like yeah, in, in a sense like the, the big bad as it were yeah like the thing that bond is most directly going up against um more so like you know kind of the person most of the time is the person that has like the machinations of the plans you know we have people that you know the henchmen and other characters that push out that plan um but like they're the ones that are like the behind the scenes they're the ones that you know come up with this evil plan Mm -hmm. uh to you know steal some nukes or take over the world or whatever it may be and then Bond's the one that, like, at the end of the day, that's the guy he has to stop. Right, right, yeah. But but it's like, but now that we're talking about with film, though, but, like, if we're using the shorthand and culturally yeah. and historically, like, what are we thinking, what are we thinking entails of, of that? Because in, in terms of the shorthand, I think it's very much on the level of, like, in terms of comparing it, it's, like, kind of, like it's not necessarily always a take over the world, but like the big crazy plan, mm-hmm. like to, that has a lot of steps. And, you know, it's kind of like it ranges from like you know something like a Hugo Drax, where it's like, oh, I'm gonna you know I'm gonna kill all the people on Earth and repopulate like this big crazy plan. And he has a space station and he has lasers and stuff like that, like kind of that bigness. Where it's also a sense I think people would perceive like someone like a Goldfinger, where maybe he's not like a take over the world type of thing, but he has like the layer and the big like plans yeah. and he's got to like irradiate all the gold and like, he's crazy. Like mm-hmm. I think there's that element of like they're crazy and they're evil and, and someone's got to stop them. That sort of thing. Yeah. I think the biggest, um, and probably in terms of historically and what makes the idea of the bond villain so iconic is really just kind of a very simple aspect of that. The bond franchise has the, um, benefit of, all the Bond villains are basically just real people. Like, so yeah. the fact that this is like this, the franchise is like spy and espionage and um, in action that, I mean, it's for, it's in a similar way that when you think about 
comic book villains. Like one of the, like the biggest like go tos that like I think people will relate a name of a villain to somebody more so than not is like uh they they call people like a Lex Luthor. So you could yeah. easily call like a uh, like a like an Elon. I don't know. It's like Elon Musk is just like uh, the reference well, for today. Yeah. But it's like but people would say like oh he's like like a Lex Luthor type villain. Um, where it is interesting to me, and I think as we'll go on, we'll kind of I'll distinguish the two. Because whereas like the more fictional, maybe sci-fi fantasy villains stick out to me as just more memorable villains, just even on a surface level, more so than maybe the Bond villains, the one benefit that the Bond villains have is that, you know, that uh, there's more of a shorthand, I think, uh, culturally, that like a Bond villain is just basically just an elaborate person who's probably in like a suit or is in like some sort of like weird like minimalist outfit yeah. but has some sort of plan that has socio-political ecological uh ramifications yeah. to it yeah, yeah. so in, in many ways it, it's definitely i think the reason it has stuck around as a shorthand uh is because it, it is like the most relatable uh uh reference point mm-hmm uh, no, that, I, that that would be, I think, like the key factor. The of key it. factor of it, yeah. And I mean, I think there's other different tropes that like associate with the Bond villain, not mm-hmm. necessarily within like that shorthand trope, or the shorthand of it, like in real life. But you know, we kind of see like a lot of Bond villains are like they have the disfigurement, and like they're more so like on the intellectual side. Of yeah, things. that tends to be a very much. I think that's also kind of what people say as a Bond villain is that there's kind of the big mind because it needs a big mind to kind of take on these plans. Yeah, I think that when people think of a Bond villain, though, for like we, because because that was interesting, because you had mentioned that off mic that we were going to talk about like the tropes of them, and it was interesting that I couldn't necessarily. It's weird because you're right, like there is such a this is what people think a Bond villain is, but I couldn't right away tell you like what are the specifics of yeah. that, what are the tropes. No, it's know. just kind of like you know, you know it when you see it. I definitely think that. Like, there's this level of, like, you can imagine this guy... I mean, definitely money and power is one of them. Yes, that tends to be, like, because a common that, thematic yeah. between them. Like, the money and power, and again, more so on kind of the... Because usually how it's divided is, like, you know, the henchman's the big brawny, you know, fight. The Bond, bond is going to be fighting. Right, Whereas, right. Whereas, like, the actual villain is usually kind of more of a scrawny kind of... You know, not necessarily physically imposing. Obviously, can can go with a gun and stuff like that. Um, but more so kind of, again, on that intellectual side. And then Bond finally gets to him, and it's like that's like, okay, he just defeats the villain. Yeah, I think something. there's this sense of, like, the money and power, but then also showing that, like, you can do whatever you want with that. Yeah. So, like, crazy people, yes. almost. like Or, or like, people you, you could at least perceive being nuts. Exactly. I think, like, definitely Which is why, that's like, an like aspect Musk of it. Musk is, like, a good example, because, like, he's doing all this crazy stuff. Like building all this crazy stuff, and then he sometimes, you know, does weird stuff on Twitter, and people are like, "Oh, like that's." Well, crazy. what would be like? I, so, like a trope would be what? Like world domination. I like, like I think like, that like is like the world, biggest like one. Like I said, like world domination. A lot of them have that physical disfigurement. I think that that's a big part of it. Right. Um, it's that yeah, the big world domination plot usually kind of complicated in some way. Um, you know, I think, like, the people imagine, like, you know, they're the type of people that, like, come up with the elaborate trap for Bond that he has to escape right. and stuff like that. Interestingly enough, nobody who is – I haven't ever heard that uh, label given to anybody who is physically imposing, though. Exactly. Like, so that's an aspect of it as well. Like, you never – at least in my experience, you never look at, like – um 
like I don't know, like uh, who's like just like a strong guy, like The Rock. Yeah, as I was gonna say, but it's like The Rock is like nice, so you never call him that yeah. anyway. But my the point being is like you would never see somebody who looks like a physical match, right? Uh, that could like destroy right, exactly. you physically, but and you never would think of them as like a Bond villain. No, I mean, but again, because that's like what the kind of the trope is. Yeah. it's usually like when you think about like, like, you know, and it's not like it's on body type, but it's like from you know people like Goldfinger to. Hugo Drax again, all the way to like a Gustav Graves. Right. Like you're not thinking of them as like these physically imposing types. Yeah. They, it's, that's why they they're powerful enough that they have they can hire those those henchmen. They can yeah. hire those people to, to take or them out. honestly like a physical threat at all. Like because right. you rarely like ever really think of like at least in my experience the Bond villain being a fighter. In yeah, general. there's very few examples, and I was actually gonna bring that up later. But right, there's yeah. like a couple of examples of, of it. Um, like I think really the only ones that they present as the physical fighter type are the the Telly Savalas version of Blofeld, mm-hmm. um, because you know they have that ski fight and and the Telly Savalas version is just a little bit more of that physical Blofeld. Um, and then I would say like even like something like uh, like you have something on the edge of like an Alec Trevelyan because he was also he's also a spy so he has the same sort of right, skills. right yeah not necessarily like the big physical imposer but like he has the same skills to like take Bond on because right they're from the same kind of cut from the same cloth yeah but otherwise you have like again a Gustav Graves where they have to give him a power suit to like make him like a physical threat to right Bond. right you you never think there's like Bane. And then you think right. Bond villain. But it's like, you know, you have like Hugo Drax has lasers and Goldfinger has his odd job. Yeah. And it's like, you know, um, you know, all that sort of kind of crazy stuff. Um, is there anything that you think, though, that separates Bond villainy from superhero villainy? Or is it really just simply that real world aspect? It's, to it? it is the real world aspect of it, because I think when you compare someone again, like a Goldfinger to like, like the Joker, like the Joker or you know, Loki or something like that. Right, like yeah, it's yeah. more so because they have like powers or they're, you know, or they're more in a crazy world. Like the because the Joker doesn't have powers, but he's more like theatrical. Theatrical and he's more insane. I think what the other thing about the Bond villains is yes, we think of them as crazy, we think of them as insane, but there's a more of a subtlety mm-hmm. to their insanity. Whereas like the Joker is again, is that theatrical, he's laughing, he's got the makeup, he's doing three ass bombs everywhere. Or it's like there's a kind of a quiet intensity to like how the Bond villains are are perceived. That's true. That yeah, they're, you know, because it's even like the ones that are more out there, like you know the Donald Pleasance Blofeld. Right. Uh, you know, sometimes they feel out of place in those types of movies where it's like when you get that kind of even stuff like uh, again, and we'll you talk about it more in detail when we get to our favorites, but stuff like Doctor Kananga in Live and Let Die, right. or, or Sanchez. You know, those are more they're they're crazy in their own ways. But they're still grounded enough within a real world element. I mean, I use the both of the drug dealers in that case. But even yeah. even Drax seems like he's just like a businessman, right? You know, a businessman that has has his grand aspirations of like a perfect world, like a new a, a new Eden essentially. Um, but like he still has a realistic tendency to him. Whereas like even like if you look at you know the Marvel movies, all those villains either have powers or are in that theatrical realm right well it, it is funny though the, that you mentioned that and um and this may be a good segue to not maybe not completely talking about him but you did mention blofeld and ultimately like blofeld is 
probably the the poster boy for at least the image of of that's, the yeah, Bond that's villain. The thing, because like, despite all of that, the guy sitting in the chair with the cat in his in his arms, yeah. I would say is probably the most theatrical like um piece of iconography when I mean, it comes to again, Bond villainy. A, the, the, that's the reason that Doctor Evil exists. Right, exactly. And, like, and people yeah. will take that because again, I think that's an element of it is that and we'll, we will talk about Austin Powers more deep uh, right. yeah, in the yeah, yeah. episode, but, like, the fact that, like, you know, all, uh, Dr. Evil is presented in that way just reinforces what people think about the Bond villains. Mm-hmm. Because, yes, Dr. Evil is very specifically a a parody homage to the Donald Pleasance Blofeld, but that's just a general, yeah, like, the, the chair and the crazy, like, you know, the crazy traps and and the world domination and kind of, you know... Mm-hmm. All that sort of stuff yeah. comes comes into that full swing, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, but it's like uh, despite all what we've said about Blofeld and does he actually have like a cultural pull? More so than the character, maybe not, but the image definitely you know perceives that way. No, definitely. I mean, and actually, some other tropes. Now that we're speaking, like just tropes in general. There's two underrated tropes that I think that we can't forget about either. Uh, that associates with villains. There is the evil lair, I oh, believe. Yes, of course, yeah. I think that, um, I don't know if that's 100% like a Bond thing, but I definitely do think it's it's part of it. Like, definitely. I, I, I do think it's something that people associate with Bond, and it's not necessarily just a Bond villain thing. Right. But people do associate like the villain has his lair. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, like there's a wide variety of types of lairs that a villain may have, but the, they definitely have like the villain has their home base and it has all their you know, where they plot everything and where, like, the final battle usually takes place. Right. Um, uh, maybe a villainous monologue? Would a monologue be, like... Because that's actually an interesting one, because I, I know we, like, make fun of that more, like, in the superhero thing, yeah. but, I mean, I mean that that's kind of like... I guess maybe I'm associating that with, like, the big the big plan. One one trope, definitely, though, in this, this is a Bond thing, is the traps. Yes. Leaving the villain in a trap or is definitely be, like, like takes the, me back to Bond and uh like and just all the spy movies in mm-hmm. general, but mostly yeah. Bond. But yeah. I also think it's like cuz I think like the monologue, you know, I also think that in a way what kind of helps the Bond villain stand out is again that kind of thing we've talked about where yes there have been other like franchises and blockbusters before this, but like the truth, you know, the first true like series of films that were a blockbuster entertainment were these Bond movies, and these were the first, like really, as they got more mainstream, as they became a more mainstream franchise, the villain part just became sort of you know up there more. So. Right, right. Because like when you get to like yeah, you get to even like the eighties and stuff when you get to those types of heroes, when you get to the Hans Grubers and and stuff like that, they have their own monologues and they they take a lot of like general inspiration from what those big Bond villains right, were, were right. doing. And, like, the monologue, I mean, like, Goldfinger has his monologue and uh, Blofeld has his monologue in uh, uh, You Only Live Twice and, you know, in, uh, you know, all that sort of stuff. And yeah, and Kananga has... Everybody has their, like, speech to Bond. Now, lots of... You know, the the parody is that, oh, like, they make the speech and then that's how Bond escapes, which is not really true, but they do all have, you know, kind of... The big villains. I've won Bond. Type yeah, yeah. Of, type of situation. I, I think that gets. I think that goes back to just like the elaborate nature of the plan. But the but the traps is definitely one. Mm-hmm. The definitely like because that's been in every spy thing, like ever. Sen- like even it, and and it is funny when you go back and watch these movies. I mean, it's the first. It's is is it. 
they do it in the first movie, right? Yeah. Like where they leave him for a trap, and then the villains like Toodaloo Bond, and yeah. then uh, and, and then he escapes the trap. Well, yeah, because he well they like they he kind of escapes his trap, and then he has to save Honey Rider from her trap, which right. is the Piranha Pool. Um, but yes, no, it's it's from moment one. I mean, obviously the most iconic of those traps. That's is- what's so funny. It's such a trope that Bond walks into another character going through that trope. Because mm-hmm. it, it is funny. That it's actually one of the more humorous parts of that movie to me is that they don't explain like really what he's doing to Honey Rider, what Dr. No is doing with like the, the water is like coming yeah. up and everything. Bond just walks into into that and then like saves her. But it's just funny because like in another movie, you would think that they would like have explained that, like spend some screen time explaining yeah. like or this like, is or what like the you trap. set it up for the tension is more so like he just walks in on her. Yeah. Right, yeah. It's but it is funny that like elsewhere he had his he he set up like that scene yeah. where he leaves the person to die happened to another uh, character yeah. off screen. But it's like because you're right because the traps like when you think of a Bond villain like well, honestly one of the first images anybody is going to think is Bond uh, on the table getting lasered by Goldfinger. Right. Like, that's yeah. like that is the iconic trap. Yeah. And it's like obviously other traps. You're either going to think even though this I don't believe this has happened in Bond but you're either going to think about that or the Pendulum of Doom. Like just like the the giant like uh like the scythe or whatever like going back and forth until it like you know cuts him in half, which is like really kind of like that's always humorous to see unless you watch Saul in which they do that to somebody yeah. and it does not go well. Um, but like that's always like when I think of like the trap, it's mm-hmm. that's like my go to. Uh, well, and then the ultimate one is lowering you into a in, into like a shark, shark tank shark or yeah. waters, which happens a couple times. Or, yeah, or yeah, threatens there, to happen a couple times. There's a good amount of shark shark action in these. There's in a these there's films. a there's a good amount of sharks in Bond. Yeah, yeah. There there is uh, shark is the popular animal. Yeah. Um. There's a, there's a gator pool. Yeah. From Live and let die. Uh, there's basically like the the general like Moonraker traps, which like which uh, Drax has multiple ones in that one. Right, right, definitely. Um, all that sort of fun stuff. Um, the, de- the Death Train in uh, yeah. Goldeneye. Are there any in the new movies? Has has there been like a I'm leaving you to to die here? Like is it is it, I don't I don't remember. Uh, I, don't recall te- I mean, one. technically, like uh, in Scott and uh, Spectre, he's gonna basically paralyze him in the chair and basically like oh, you're gonna die and then i'll leave you and stuff no but that, that but one not, doesn't really count because no. he was going to well no nothing like that because he's yeah. been left he's been left places but right. more so like because obviously there's like stuff like you know yeah it's nothing like the classic one but i mean again those movies really haven't taken much of those classic right tropes but, in that way. It, but i'm trying to think of in the brosnan ones is, is is there is there one in those no because again it's more so they they have them in traps I, I well there, no there was there was one where i mean i they kind of skirt around it uh when she she has him in the torture chair there's the torture chair yeah. i mean like the henchman's gonna kill holly bailey with the lasers and stuff like that and he's, she's gonna that's kind of one yeah, yeah. Um, but but it is funny though but early and, and again those... also like the the ice hotel melting that's like the whole point is like they're gonna trap him in the ice yeah hotel yeah and it melts but the real classic one like it is funny right out of the gate and in, in those early films like they do that trope of like bye bond and then yeah, see you they, another day yeah, like, again like there's there's uh bond on the chair on the on the with the laser and goldfinger there's the, the shark pool in 
Thunderball. Right, right. There's, you know, all that sort of stuff. So Bambi and Thumper. Bambi and Thumper, yeah. <laughs> um Yes indeed. So so yeah, so those would that would actually be, I think, probably one of the stronger stronger tropes. Yeah. Uh, of it um so like thinking about that because you know kind of bouncing off of you know early in the early days that like the tropes kind of just like came out like pretty mm-hmm. much right away yeah. and i mean like and then we had talked about this i think with the with goldfinger in general that um that film basically solidifies a lot of what people know about bond yeah and the, that's the probably goldfinger one of the first is, characters again, like yes you're right goldfinger is like the movie that like solidifies what bond becomes because those first two movies are a lot more lower key. And it's also, I think, where the the movies really start to differentiate from the books. Because one of the things about the books is like, yes, these villains have this big plans. But the movies definitely put a little bit more of that flair. Even though it keeps them in that real world sense. You know, stuff like Goldfinger is, and you know, um, even the Thunderball stuff is a little bit more fleshed, flared up. Well, what what like, do you mean by Because that was going to be one of my questions is what the villains are like traditionally in the books. In well, because like the first, like especially like the first two, like let's take like the first three books, which are uh, um, uh, da, Casino Royale, mm-hmm. Live and Let Die, and Moonraker, which is like, you know, Casino Royale just has Le Chief, and, you know, it's more so just the poker game. There's the torture scene. Uh, you know, and that's basically like kind of just a more so like you no know, no big end of the world thing. There's that. Then Live and Let Die again is just a drug movie or a drug book, right? And and Mister Big and Doctor Kananga isn't that again more so lower you know lower key. Uh, and then we get the Moonraker, and yes, Moonraker does have kind of a more space based plot, but again, it's not like you know Moonraker the book is very different from Moonraker the movie in the sense that Moonraker the book is. More, it's more similar to what Goldeneye is, where it's about like a guy taking over a satellite and then he's gonna drop it on London unless he gets his money. Which right. again is still like more starting to get in that megalomaniac kind of realm, um, but not too too big of that. But right. even stuff like, um, you know, stuff like Goldfinger, where like in the movie they basically dismiss the villain's plan in the book as like impossible. In the movie, it really was like Goldfinger is just wants to steal the gold. Mm-hmm, like right. that's his whole thing is he's going to steal the gold instead of irradiating it and, and ruining the market. And it's not really until you get towards those later books where we, you know, the Blofeld stuff starts to happen that you really kind of get into that big end of the world stuff. Because even like the other stories, like stuff like the short stories especially are very much, again, more on that regular spy stuff. Mm. Like the more stuff that's actually based in, uh, you know, Fleming's world essentially. Um, from Russia with Love, again, is one of those early books, and it's just more so like, hey, it's just Russia. And it's like the movies really, because what kind of happens is, what really happens is the movies sort of do a couple things. One is that they start with Dr. No. And Dr. No is, again, in that later books where kind of those megalomaniac kind of world, end of the world stuff kind of starts to creep into Bond. Uh, so basically, even though that's later in Fleming's work, it's the first Bond movie. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing that really kind of makes it bigger flair in the in the bond films is that they start off right away with like this specter storyline and so you're presenting this kind of big evil organization that's not connected to anybody politically again with uh, on purpose by uh saltzman and broccoli because they don't want to have that political nature hanging over the movie but by doing that you kind of are like doing this big third party terrorist organization that has people everywhere are very intellectual manipulating everything. And then it builds up to, or it's supposed to build up to this mm-hmm. big kind of Blofeld and the big sets. 
I mean, and it's also uh, Ken Adam as production designer leads to that with like the visual flair of, you know, Dr. No's aquarium and, and Goldfinger's rumpus room where he has like the, you know, the, the thing that flips into the model of Fort Knox all the way to especially the volcano set in, you know, for uh, you only live twice, which is really what establishes that layer aspect more so than anything else. And it sort of, sort of kind of builds from there. And you start off that big, you start off with this big storyline, and then only you got to keep it up uh, right. from there. And that's like, even like we're talking about Moonraker, for example, one of the reasons that uh, Broccoli did not want to do Moonraker for such a long time was he felt like the story was small potatoes now. There was just some guy taking over a satellite. And the same reason that he didn't want to pursue the Casino Royale rights. Like, mm-hmm. what is Lashif? He's just a poker player. Right. We don't need to go back to that now that we've had, you know, big volcano sets and stuff like that. What do you think the inspiration was, though, for... Because clearly, like, even though, like, I wouldn't say, like, anything crazy happened right out the gate, there was definitely a decision to make them a little bit more of, like, serial villains. Like, where it's just, like, where, you know, like... It was low and key and understated with Doctor No, but his like what well, his thing was like he's very elaborate and it's very much like a fictionalized villain. And yeah, then what was his thing? He didn't have hands. He has the claw hands. Yeah, he has the claw hands. And then you have like a dude with like a he's, metal Richter set arm in the next one, and that because that's in the next one, right? Uh, no, 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 no. That's um. Well, that's the next. That's book. that's live and let die. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Um. But yeah, I guess, it, yeah. Like, the first sec- for his love is like the most down the earth. Yeah, that had Quint. Um, yeah. But then like the next one it has Goldfinger. Yeah, then has Goldfinger, which is like, but there is that sense where they're taking the step of like, well, he's going to irradiate all the gold, which is definitely yeah. like but, a more even, fictional like, conceit. But even like from Russia with love, even if it has the lower key villains, you also have this organization that has like, you know, that like the opening sequence is them practicing on killing Bond by having someone wear a mask. And then that's they have, true. And they have, like, that's, spec- that's the opening they have, scene. And they have Spectre Island where they're training like Red Grant to be, you know, the, the Quint right, to be like right. the perfect person. So what do you think the inspiration for being that fictionalized and very like serial and very comic I, I do generally think, I think it just starts with them adapting Dr. No, right. where you have like just, it's just one of the more bigger villains that Fleming made. Uh, within his book career and so you just kind of start that off and i mean like in the in the decision process for that book if we go back to our first episode was very much that it would be a cheaper book to make because it has one location jamaica which is easy to film at not too many like really crazy stunts that they would need to do but it's just like you kind of start with that and also the fact that i mean and the big decision they made in regards to that too is was altering dr no to be an asian of specter because in the books, and we again, uh, books are something that we'll get deeper into in a little bit later. Uh, but the books, like Spectre, is like was just a trilogy that comes off of the Thunderball script and the whole lawsuit and everything like that. Um, but the fact that they decided, well, that's where we want to go. We want to have this criminal organization, and we want to place this character who wasn't originally in there uh, within it. And then they do the same thing with From Us with Love that they, you know take out the smirsh element, the real-life smirsh Russian stuff, mm, and replace mm-hmm. it with this big, again, third-party organization, it just kind of naturally flows into mm-hmm. creating something big. Mm. And then and then it just gets to Goldfinger. And I think Goldfinger is the real, again, that turning point for the franchise where it does, like, Goldfinger's... You know, because I think, like, changing that plan for Goldfinger to radiate to gold, um, again, from a practicality standpoint, it's just to make the plan much more sane. The ma- not much more saying, much more realistic, much more something that could actually happen. 
Because, again, in the book, it's like he's going to take all the gold, and then in the movie, Bond says, like, well, it would take you, like, seven days to like, right, take all right. the gold out. It's impossible. But the fact that they did that is just a subtle little thing, and, and Gert Frobe has that big performance, and it's just kind of, I think, something that became natural, and I think that they kind of almost accidentally created their own tropes in right. a sense, where it's just, like, stuff that just made sense in little pieces eventually led, okay, now we need big villains. Well, but here's the interesting thing, is that when you think about it, rarely are Bond villains v- staunchly politically aligned in, uh in a way that has Bond face either like a political establishment or like a country oh, yeah. in general. Well, like I said, and like, not to say that yeah. the movies have avoided that, but when you really think about it, like you know, Bond by nature, it's interesting, is dealing with very real world types of ramifications, and it very much is operating within the real world, despite yes. the like, uh, yeah. like the pounds would be crazy, but there is a sense, especially in those early ones. Mm-hmm. Like I said, like the Goldfinger plan to change it to make it like still crazy, but a little bit more realistic. Of like, oh, if this actually happened, this would be a big deal. If mm. you just like nuked all the gold and made right. it irradiated. But what I'm saying is that you have villains where there a lot of times in the Bond franchise, there is a lot of if this person is going to be a vi- like so. Um, what was it in? I want to say Octopussy, where it was like one of the the villain was like a uh, uh, Russian. Like, yeah, uh, yeah, kind of like the the villain that's that's kind of big, but also not really in the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, but where, where his plan is basically like, well, I'm gonna manufacture a war. Oh, yeah, like I'm gonna manufacture deal. a war because we can win the war. Right. Yeah. So, so the reason I bring that up is like there is this sense of when they do something like that, or if they bring like, oh, this person is politically aligned in this way. Even when you get to something, um, uh, like even more absurd like the general moon character right. and uh, thing and um uh die another day um that that's the movie right die another yes, day yes. Did i get that right sorry yeah. um but when you think about that they do the those they make those the villains but then they also go the extra step of being like this guy is too crazy for like the soviet union right, yeah. or like general moon he's fighting for Korea, but he's too crazy even for the Koreans. Right, and like even his dad's like, if if you hadn't have killed him, we would have killed him eventually. Right, yeah. So I mean, it's like, so yeah. it's interesting that they even when they get into when they have a Bond villain that uh, has that foot into just because by nature of the story has yeah. that foot into the more real world it gets, it is interesting that it, there it does seem to be this history of the Bond franchise taking that step to really fictionalize their villains. Yeah, and I think that, again, that comes from that early stuff, of, especially in, in when Cubby was alive, yeah. more so than anything else. He was like, I don't want these, especially you know, in those very early days when it was really the height of the Cold War still. Yeah. Like, I mean, this was still like in the era of like you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis and everything like that, where the threat of nuclear war was very real. Mm-hmm. And like Cubby and, and Saltzman were like, we don't want to like do anything that, can incite stuff or or we don't want to kind of take a stance we just want to kind of be these this fun spy stuff so Mm. again that specter stuff's in there but even when you get into that kind of real world stuff like the most you get that is kind of the fight for the atac system in uh for your eyes only where it's like okay this this submarine uh communication device you know the, the the british have to find it or the russians find it and like can decode british submarine stuff right even then like then when they do those types of stakes, it's such more smaller scale um, to the point where it's not necessarily like it's just more so an advantage in this Cold yeah. War. And even then, 
your villain in that movie is not necessarily the Russians, it's Christavos, and like right. he's the one that like kind of is more so just in it for the money and not really realizing the ramifications. Yeah, it's just interesting that they make those steps so it's not like all right, right. it's really Bond. Ver- so like, what? Are you, but like that—that's an actually an interesting like subject when it comes to these Bond villains. Like, so what is your thought like on that in general? Uh, because the well, thing I mean, is like, there's there's precedent for it in fiction. There's like. G.I. Joe and Cobra, where yeah. it's like G.I. Joe has its roots in being uh, a very, like, war, like, kind of driven thing, and then, like, it, it has really since been more famous for being, like, oh, it's, like, uh, an international organization fighting an evil international organization of Cobra yeah. that we find out is run by snake people. Uh, I was once a man. Yeah, that that is a true thing. Go go and watch how uh, Cobra Commander uh, was once a man and uh, used to be and uh, used to be a snake. Um, but then, but even like uh, in more recent memory uh, with the Marvel films, like you have Captain America: The First Avenger, where it's uh, where Red Skull is the Nazi that the Nazis hate. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. like you know, it's like. But it is interesting because you know there is, and then, and then it, that in, within that franchise, it even evolves into Hydra where. It's like you know we're Nazis, but not Nazis. And that's right? Yeah. It, it's like they're they are above. They're so evil. They're in weird ways. They're so evil. They're above the real evils that actually occurred in our world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like we don't. It's like no, listen. We don't want to kill a specific group of people. We just want to kill everybody. So like, what what's kind of like your take on like the Bond franchise in many ways? Like kind of like going that route with its villains. I think it's a couple things. Mm-hmm. I think that one. I think it's a perception sometimes, though. Like, even as a kid, I was like, oh, like, Bond fights the Russians, and he really doesn't. Like, right, he yeah. really don't. They really don't delve into that too often. Like, in maybe one or two movies, they really kind of get into that aspect. What I do think it is, is that I think that's one of those elements that, because they don't really go that political route most of the time, it makes the idea of the Bond villain and some of those Bond villains just more timeless and iconic mm-hmm. in a way because you're not associating them with a specific period in time. You're not associating like the with the Cold War specifically. Like, yeah, the spy genre comes out of post-World War II and, and, and the spy kind of real-world spy stuff that kind of comes out about that. And, you know, even Fleming taking inspiration from his own, you know, spy stuff. But that kind of element kind of pops in about it. But for Bond, because most of the time you're, especially in those early Connery films, you're dealing with Spectre or, again, like a a guy who just wants to be rich in Goldfinger. And then you kind of transition into the Moore era where, again, you kind of get more of these big megalomaniac villains. Right. uh, That it just creates, like, again, they're kind of agents of their own. Mm -hmm. They have their own plans. And I think that's what kind of creates that mystique of the Bond villain even more. Mm -hmm. That's not like, oh, this, this guy's working for this country or this guy's working for this or that. You know, the Bond villain traditionally is like just some some rich, crazy guy who has this big plan to change the course of human history, essentially. And it, yeah. like, it creates like more of a timeless nature for those characters, I think, that, that it's so, easier for people to kind of, again, perceive that in a real world. Mm-hmm. But de- devil's advocate for this, do you think that Bond, because it's interesting that you say like you, in your reference for Bond from a younger age, was like, oh, he fought the Russians. My reference for Bond, I didn't really know too much about any of that Cold War stuff until much later on. To me, it was like, oh, fighting the megalomaniacal uh, right. villain. Right. So, do you do, what? Do you think that Bond has, like, you, well, first of all, do you think that Bond has essentially kind of like moved away 
from that really being a big motivating factor that Bond is essentially, even though it has grown to be a bigger thing, that Bond is at its core a, you know, a Cold War-ish, like, espionage uh, kind of Oh, uh, it, it definitely moved roots. away from yeah. that. Like, the further we got into the Cold War, um, especially once you get into the Moore era, I think a lot of those Connery films, especially those early ones, even stuff like Goldfinger and Thunderball, there's elements from what was going on in the Cold War at that time that I think still kind of creeps into that. Yeah. By the time I think you get to like something like Diamonds Are Forever, um, or when you really double down on the Spectre stuff, and then once you get to the more stuff, I mean, it starts with Live and Let Die, mm-hmm. which again, Kananga's just in it for drugs. right? And then you get to, you know... Um, his most kind of spy-ish one, to be quite honest, um, is like Man with the Golden Gun because he's just fighting another assassin. Right. But then it still has the big like, you know, he's going to, you know, take the sun ray and, and shoot everybody. Yeah. And then you get into, but by the time you get into um, Spy Who Loved Me, which is, again, big underwater megalomaniac, <laughs> Moonraker, which is big space megalomaniac. Right, right, right. Like, then you're kind of starting to get away from that. And then you kind of like ebb and flow. Uh, but by the time you get to like, especially Dalton, Dalton is very much, a, you know, and that they, we talk, we talked about this in those episodes that the Dalton movies are very much like in a transition of like, well, the cold war is essentially ending, you know? Um, and then the Brosnan era doubles down on that because the cold war has, has officially ended between that time. And then mm-hmm. there was that big question within the media is like, because the media associated bond with kind of the cold war spy fantasy, which is again, just more so like the the cold war kind of, the spy genre became bigger out of the Cold War. Right, right. And then post-Dalton, in that big gap, when the Brazen, when Goldeneye was starting to kind of ramp up production, there was that question. was like, can you still have these villains? Can you still have... What do you have Bond fighting if we don't need spies? Yeah, was, was, I, but in, in some ways, I think that's not giving themselves credit for it because I don't necessarily immediately relate the Cold War well, roots no, I, to these villains. Again, I, I, but I think that's what's interesting is yeah. that like I did... Yeah. And I think a lot of the media, especially within that GoldenEye period, did. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that's really the case, is that the Bond movies really stick away from that conflict so much. Yeah. Like, again, you can count those movies that use that conflict on its hand, like from Wash With Love for Your um, for your Eyes Only, um, and to an extent, The Living Daylights. So yeah. It kind of uses it as the background. And those are the really the three movies that truly... and. I mean, Octopussy as well, I think, has that. So those are like the four movies that really use that element. Right. But like the Cold War is more so like why the spy genre rose um, because... Sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's yeah. why people associate the Bond villainy and like the what Bond fights with the Cold War so much because yeah. so much of the other spy work that surrounds Bond is, is very Cold War based, yeah. whether it's more realistic or more parody like the... Our Armand Flint series, which is very much still in that kind of, uh, he's fighting people with nukes and stuff like that. I, I'm I have two thoughts about it. I, I think that in in the and I feel a very similar way about Godzilla, where in the same way where I don't think that while it's important and to always remember the nuclear origins of Godzilla and understand like that was like the root of the character. Um, I don't think it's the best thing to hold that precious anymore, only because the character has just evolved in many ways past that. Yeah. Uh, not only within its material, but also like our 
understanding and knowledge and quite frankly fear of um or lack thereof of nuclear energy is just not the same thing it was back in like yeah. 1954 so you know it's almost unreasonable to always like have to hold that aspect of the godzilla character precious and in the same i feel a very similar way to the cold war aspects of bond where it's like i think that those are some of the roots but in some ways i think that what it has evolved into is a little bit bigger and not yeah. and you're right it has the and through the villains has become a way more timeless thing yeah. And the and, second piece, the okay. second piece of that is that ultimately, like, because there is a conversation to have is like, does Bond being more having Cold War roots and fighting, um, and you know, and taking place in espionage, uh, is the are these movies by making these fictionalized villains kind of like skirting around the more political implications of like the of the films. My my point about this is, despite being Cold War in root, and despite being about espionage, is that these movies really aren't that political. And no, they're not. And 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 the reason I say that is because look at the first movie. The first movie really it it really is setting the stage for it's not him doing a mission against like cold like cold war in like, like cold the war Eastern russia Bloc. yeah, yeah it, it's not him like trying to like get into the soviet union and like find right. out like you know who like wh- like wh- which one of these commies are like you know within oh, our yeah, ranks absolutely like not. It, it's not that it's him going to an island and fighting a supervillain right it's basically like this mysterious death happened on this island right for three of our agents you're going to find out what's going on and he finds this supervillain that's going to launch a missile you know and and you know cause all sorts of chaos right and, and and not necessarily like again he's not doing it and again it's like that big deal where it's like he's not an agent of russia or smirsh or anything like that it's again this third party kind of terrorist specter organization so when he launches that missile it's not you're right it's not he's like oh well this is for russia and it's the communists and stuff like that it's more so we're just going to create this chaos yeah and that's what specter is all about and again like i said that's the big you know that's what kind of um, Broccoli and Saltzman wanted. They didn't want want to make these movies political. They wanted to make these big, you know, spy fantasies. Yeah, they're basically what they're doing is they're just taking the the landscape of the history of whatever yeah. time period it takes place and just puts in Bond and the villain and the pieces and like yeah. how do they operate yeah. almost in that world? Because again, like what what a lot of times what Fleming was dealing with was those more real world villains. Like again, the best example is from Rush with Love, where. In the book, he's de- Bond is dealing with the real life Smirsh organization, right. which is the real life kind of you know uh, Russian sort of version of MI6. Not not really one to one, but kind of a similar aspect of it. And when Broccoli and Saltzman were like, "Well, we don't want to have Russians as the villains. We want to insert Spectre." As tough as that process was, because remember it was a big process to like, "Well, we still want to involve Russia because the movie's from from Russia with love," right? But all the machinations of how that plot happens. But again, it creates like, "Well, now Spectre is this organization that's basically manipulating both sides and manipulate them into a fight against each other so that they can get this decoder, right. the, the Lecter decoder device." And that really is what defines, you know. Those early three films, and and Goldfinger's where it all gets solidified, but from Much with Love and Doctor No, they start what the Bond villains would be yeah. in terms of you know Doctor No being kind of the big megalomaniac, and and again starting later in Fleming's book life, 
so that, you know, the Fleming's later bigger megalomania villains kind of come to screen early. And then in that second movie, to making the villains, again, doubling down and it being this third-party organization manipulating both sides of this Cold War, yeah. which really just makes it, well, it's not about the Cold War. It's about this group kind of causing chaos and trying to start a war, yeah. essentially. And it's also that the movies really aren't, pointedly trying to make a point about yeah. any of the, yeah, you, the it's world. It's like Bond's fighting a villain yeah. and you want Bond to beat that It's villain. one of the things where, because sometimes, like, you know, there's been a lot of writings, like, let's say about, like, the Marvel movies, and it's a little bit easier even if I don't necessarily agree with all the readings. Those are movies that I, I do feel are making an effort to be about something. Yeah. And, and whereas... The Bond movies really aren't all the time, and in fact, like when they have in the in these Craig movies, they've stumbled more often than not. Than not, yeah. Because um, well, even like the Craig movies, like the fact that they went back to Casino Royale and that you know that first Bond book having that lower key villain that's just a poker player trying to get out of some debt, right? Yeah, like that defines what that Craig series is, mm-hmm, and, and right. that's what allows them to do kind of the grittier reboot is because you don't have. This big megalomaniac villain trying to take over the world. You just have a poker player trying to, you know, basically cheat at a poker game to get off of his of his debt. Right, right, and, right. And I think that that really defines up until you get to Skyfall. Honestly, uh, not Sky, I mean, kind of Skyfall, but more so when you get the Spectre because right. Skyfall has like kind of like you think it's like the big like hacker villain and he's gonna do that, but he's really just out for revenge on it. Right. But it's once you get the Spectre and once they go back to Blofeld, who is the classic megalomaniac villain that, you know, people perceive as like with the with the white cat and everything like that, that's when you kinda get a little bit more of that grounded megalomaniac plan where he's gonna take over yeah. you know, um you know, he's gonna basically have all the world's information at his hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. But it's but but again it's like just as choosing Doctor No first kinda leads you to having those bigger villains Going back to Casino Royale and choosing to adapt that book pretty much straightforward with a little bit the be- with a little bit added at the beginning for context, you know, does kind of lead you to this world where you can do sort of the more real world stuff, Inspector in Skyfall. Yeah, and it's also interesting with the villains though too, like just or piggy quantum in Skyfall, w- but piggybacking off of kind of what I was saying about the politically alignment between the the landscape and the villains. Is that really up until Craig, there was always like a at least a political landscape that is at least the setting of it yeah. that they put in their own fictional characters to have fun with? Because ultimately, yeah. and I won't get too much into this argument, but there is kind of that argument of like, well, once you start inviting that, like, oh, this guy is a Nazi and he's working for the Nazis, or this guy is North Korean and he's working for the North Koreans. The implications of it, then you kind of like take on the baggage well, yeah. of having to like really be political, and, and then and then I think for their also, direction, it's not as fun for cause, them. Because I also think that you do get like I think the transition does come later after the the more films are done, because if um, you know when you take a look at like the Dalton into the Brosnan films, like all those, you know, you start to get that creep in of the little bit more political viewpoint, because like you know, live and let die or. Uh, like, uh, excuse me. Living Daylights seeps in that Russian war with Afghanistan a little right. bit more. Um, and sort of, again, Yorgi is a character that's working on his own devices, manipulating both sides, but it kind of starts to seep in. You know, um, License to Kill has, again, the real world kind of Colombian drug running. But then you get to the Brosnan era, and all, all those films do have a bel- kind of a more political yes, they background. Do. Yeah. Where it's like, you know, Trevelyan is kind of going back to the political nature of the Cold War and of World War II. And that sort of aspect of yeah. it, which makes that character very interesting. But then you get like, you know, 
Tomorrow Never Dies has the whole like China thing. Yeah, and then yeah. Again, that because that script again was originally more very political in the sense of like it was a guy trying to prevent the British giving Hong Kong back to the Chinese. And while that element of the plot disappeared, that kind of big like well we're gonna take over the media aspect and we're gonna like you know, have this deal with China is big. Even electric, you know, uh, the Electric King character in uh, the world is not enough. Is again that whole thing where it's like her whole deal is that she's gonna basically alter these oil pipelines and. Po- Alter the political landscape of the world, and right? Yeah, obviously die another day, and then but also like being an heiress too yeah, is yeah. like it comes into play. Yeah, in so that. like like you really start like post because like post more when like you know d- definitely Michael G. Wilson and eventually Barbara get more up yeah. into it. They they do take a little bit more of that political nature into those villains. But I, I would say you're right that the Brosnan. I would say all the Brosnan movies, uh, their villains do take cues more politically than. Than, most of the other franchise than, than any of the more which is also yeah. kind of like going into and then when we get into our modern day very little when you really think about it when you really it. think about it yeah like it, it it there's almost goes, again, goes back to kind of just more so like because again like you but then because again it's almost one of those things where yes there's a political stance but then you're going back to basing it on, that's true on, on a on a group on a, a third party group because it starts with quantum and yes quantum is this you know and Mr. Green right. is very much like, well, I'm going to, you know, we're like the new currency is oil and we're going to basically control the your oil fields in, right. in, in exchange for this dictatorship. But again, you're kind of, it's not, you know, there's a political aspect, but it's more so, again, it's, here's this quantum third party organization manipulating all sides to get there. Right. And then when quantum transitions into Spectre, it's the same thing where now it's like you get, you get the big room and. You know the you know Blofeld at the top of the room and and all these mysterious people. Yeah. Well, there's this sense of like those villains are like it's the criminal like with those villains there's no political landscape they're feeding off of it's just criminal underbelly. The underbelly, yeah. And then then you have the personal tale of Silva and then they tried to go elaborate yeah. with. But I actually this is all this is all good because I think I understand why that the the Craig movies uh and their villains don't work for me as much with the exception of maybe Silva. Mm-hmm. I think that they the reason they don't work for me is like when you think about it they they aren't they don't have that political landscape to make it like at least like kind of interesting from like a from like a big picture point of view you don't really get the sense of there's not really too much iconic about any of those characters no no silva's the the closest yeah but honestly i the only reason it's silva is because it's like because of javier bardem's performance like that's that's really what it is and like that one the one long take scene yeah monologue there's really makes that character so memorable with these characters in the in the Craig era, there's nothing to throw your hat on to. Because like you, because, because they, like what's his name? Lashif. Yeah. When you really think about Lashif, I don't find I don't find that with Lashif and Mr. Green, yeah. there's nothing really satisfying about those characters. Yeah. Really. And like you don't spend to me, I don't feel like you don't spend enough time with any of those characters to make them like, oh, enjoyable to watch. And you don't really get what the implications of of what these characters are doing, and, and I think like that's always been a staple. That if we're talking about tropes of Bond and the staples of a Bond villain, at least there are some implications to what they're yeah. doing. But and, yeah, and, and those Craig villains too. I think they have the issues that we've discussed. One is that none of those villains really build stakes, which at the end of the day, I think are as interesting choices. But also, again, it's just another thing to lack your hang your hat on. Right? Mm-hmm. There's no. 
I'm going to, you know, kill everybody on Earth aspect. It's more so like, again, Silva, is, it's more personal, but you don't have that aspect of it to hang your hat on. And the other thing I would say about it is that, especially with those first two, like, it's not as if, like, remember, it's not as if Bond kills Lashif. Remember, right. Lashif gets killed by his own people. Right. And even Mr. Green, like, you know, Bond kind of, you know, stops, you know, what was going on, kind of kills the dictator. But even with him, he's like, oh, like, I'm going to get the information on Quantum and leave you in the middle of the desert. In, in many and ways. Even, even, like, the Silva kill is not that satisfying. Yeah. But in many ways, like, after everything we go through, those two characters, those first two characters especially, they don't feel like Bond villains. No. They just feel like the guy he's after. Yeah, like or just it, like the, in, the, the just the opposing force. Right. Yeah. Right. Like it, it does feel like in some ways it's like like it's almost henchman esque where it's like oh but he beats this guy and then he gets to the he gets to the bigger bad. Yeah. You know because, what they feel? You know what it kind of feels like? It kind of feels like the Bond villain in those two movies, especially those first two movies, feel like the guy that they think that they're after. Yeah. Like, the guy that's mm. going to tell them, like, all right, but and then he's going to lead them into the big bad. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. that's kind of, like, what it w- what they feel like. Right, yeah. Or, or like, you know, the one that, like, you know, M's telling him to go after, but, but Bond's suspicious of someone else. Yeah, yeah. Like, and he's like, well, I'm going to go after this guy. And then everybody's like, oh. Well, kind of like, like, uh, um, in uh, more so like kind of what the pres- what the presentation is in Never Say Never Again, right? Where where the M's like, well, we don't know what's really going on, and then Bond's more so like, well, it's actually this guy that you're going after, and everybody's like, that guy, mm-hmm. that guy's like the nicest guy in the world, right? Exactly, yeah. So I think that was always a problem, and then Silva kind of gets back on track, and then and then the problem with like uh, with uh, what uh, Christoph Waltz is yeah. just like everything around that movie. But now that we're talking about the characters. Uh, let's talk about specifics. Like what, what are, what are, what are some, what are, what are some of the standouts? What are some that we like? What are some that we don't like? I like starting out with like the least favorites because okay. I think it like kind of builds into like, you know, our, our, our talking points of the, I always like least favorites and then favorites. Okay. First. Uh, do you want to start? Or you want me to start? Uh, you can start because I actually just kind of have like a general thoughts list. I definitely have yeah. favorites. Um, um, so the, the ones that come to mind is sort of my, my least favorite villains. Uh, these are just the ones because there are villains that are like fine, you know, like Largo in Thunderball, I think, is something that does hold that movie together, but ultimately is fine. Right. Um, the one that comes to mind immediately and it's it's a weird movie because I feel like this movie kind of has two main villains, which is kind of weird for Bond movies because I'm not talking about Octopussy because you have your main you, you have the guy that's kind of setting all this in motion but he, again he's really not a villain in the movie because right. he's barely there which is the russian general uh but i'm talking about basically bond's main adversary in octopussy the one that's really kind of you know pushing the plan into motion which is kamal khan mm. and i feel like the thing with kamal khan again it's like like everything else in octopussy it's an idea that's super solid in terms of it's really a villain that like thinks he can you know he basically bond always gets the upper hand at him he's more annoyed than anything else but it's just that character has no presence within that movie, mm. uh, does not give an interesting, iconic performance, which, again, holds a lot of these other Bond villains together, uh, and really just kind of is more so just standing there for the most of the movie when he's supposed to be this guy that is, like, pushing this plan forward, that he's the Bond that fights. And even at the end of the movie, you know, it's just like he's just kind of there. Right. He's just there for everything, and it's like there's nothing to hang your hat on because 
that movie is just overall just bad with its villains because you have one villain that should be interesting, which is the Russian general. Right. That yeah. just does you know, he has this kind of interesting presentation at the beginning of the movie, then shows up for one other scene, is dead, and like basically has no presence. And then you have Komal Khan, who at every turn is just kind of you know, just kind of put down as like not a serious threat. Which just kind of, you know, doesn't help more because, you know, more kind of plays it funny anyway. So it just makes it seem like that. And then you also have Octopussy in that movie, which is another character with wasted potential. There's also kind of like maybe like she's like she's working for him, but she's not a villain, but she kind of doesn't like him. But right. it's just like it's just like does not that movie does not work. Um, and that uh, Kamal Khan uh, does not work. I would say also just overall speaking, I would say in general, most of the Spectre stuff after we've seen Blofeld's face mm-hmm. is just stuff that just doesn't have the same. Oh, okay. So can I piggyback off of that? Yeah. Because if I were to say, because ultimately what I think about the Bond villains is that I think most of them just fit into the fine category. Yeah, that's, that's really the case. I actually think maybe one of the worst ones is Mr. Green. Because it's yeah, just that was a gonna be dude. My next one. Yeah, it's just a dude. Like it's yeah. just like th- there's nothing specific. They didn't even like at least with Lashif, they gave him like oh he cries blood. Right. Like at least they gave him that. And again, like, like Mr. A- Green's just a guy. And it's also like because even like with 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 Lashif, um, with both versions of Lashif, uh, uh, you at least have an actor that kind of brings something to that table. Sure. Yeah. Because a lot of times that's what turns the Bond villain from like not good to fine. Because mm-hmm. like. Like for the uh, difference between Malekith and uh, Ronan is, ex- is what exactly, we said. Yeah, exactly. it's like because at least if you get an actor to come in and at least like put some oomph into it, then it's always going to be infinitely right. better. But but it's always but it's like um, Mr. Green is that same way where it's like you don't have an actor that gives that performance oomph, yeah. so it is just a dude. But my thing is like because I do and I will mention this in my good stuff. I think again those early elements of Spectre in those first two appearances are solid stuff. And I think that actually presents something really interesting. But once you get once we get to you only live twice and you give Blofeld that face, those three versions of Blofeld, with the exception of maybe some of the Telly Savala stuff in um, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, there's just nothing there when it's supposed to be the big bad of Bond. Oh, it's, well, it's, so way- this is this is why I was going to put him. This is why I wanted to really put him in my like. Just what a disappointment this it, character that's, ended that's up being. That's because about Blofeld, yeah. I because here's the thing. And the reason, and I think if I really dissected it, there may be actually one entries that I would say are technically worse. Yeah. But the reason this one is like pretty bad for me was because it's a character that has appeared multiple times. I could not tell you who the best one is. Like maybe the one in um the Ve- the the Vegas one, which uh, one? Uh, Diamonds are forever. Yeah, di- in Diamonds that, are forever. We talked about that. But that may be the best one because he has like, the most to do. He has the most to do in that yeah. movie, and it's kind of like. I would say that, like, I would... Because we've talked about Blofeld enough, I think, especially... And if you want to go back to, like, a lot more specifics, we talk about a lot in that Diamonds Are Forever episode, which is one of my favorites that we've done. But the thing about Blofeld is that because that character shifts so often in terms of appearances, in terms of actors, and in terms of the way he's presented in the story, that character has... His biggest defining element is that he's bald and has a cat. Right. That, that's that's it. There's nothing about that character in terms of the character, in terms of his interaction with Bond, that kind of grabs you. Now, I'm, again, I'm a little bit partial to the Tellys of Oz in Honor Majesty's Secret Service only because th- that character does present that physical presence, which sure, I think makes sure. it a little bit more unique. But overall, that character does not work within those realms of yeah. uh, when, he, when he has a face. And 
he just gives yeah because even like in Diamonds Are Forever where he has the most to do and has his cloning plot line and the doubles plot line and that sort of stuff and he dresses in drag yeah there's just there's not really much to that character He's yeah just, I think they really and, and they, I th- they really drop the ball by not having a consistent portrayal and yeah. representation and of it them. even starts with that because it was supposed to be the the, the Swedish actor or the, the Danish comedian whoever it was and then they replaced him like two days you know within a week of, of him doing it and it's just they've never had that consistency well here's and the I, problem think, with and, him and I think the other thing about Blofeld is that it is the, the other big aspect of this disappointment which I think we've kind of been alluding to is that it's not just okay here's the villain it's like they were building up to this I mean this was right. like its own little cinematic universe within those first movies where you know, other than Goldfinger, everything was leading up to here's Spectre, here's this organization, and then you finally get to it, and then especially that Donald Pleasance version is just no good. It's just it's just such like a stark contrast to how Blofeld was presented in those first two appearances that it's just just does not it just sets up that movie for such a But he, but but look at it this way. Even if they went with the Donald Pleasance version of it. I just feel in the next movie, not only is it not Donald Pleasance, which going into these movies, I could have sworn he at least had two of these movies under his belt, which nope. he doesn't. But like when you go into the next one, it's just like a completely different it's guy. A, no, it's a completely different character. Yeah, so it's like not even just a different guy because Telly's Fall is, is completely different than Donald Pleasance. Telly's Fall plays it completely differently, right? Than and the movie itself places Blofeld in a completely different context. Like if he, because essentially you would argue that Blofeld. You could argue this, at least from this, uh, from the 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 broad point of view, is that you he's the closest thing to the arch enemy is yes. like Blofeld. He's the most iconic. He's like in, been in a in couple theory, things. Yes, in theory, yes. But like, what's his thing? I know the Joker's thing. I know Lex Luthor's thing. I know Doc Ock's thing. But what's Blofeld's thing? And that's the thing. He doesn't, other than he has a cat. Yes. You know what I mean? Like and I then, said, he's bald and has like a cat. when when you watch. Waltz in Inspector. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of like vague things. Like, all right, he's a super villain. Like, I guess, but he's like, in charge of Spectre, right? But it's we not, have one shot of the cat, right? But it's like you know how like if, if like you have a Batman movie and they bring in like the Joker, they bring in the Riddler, and he's doing his Rid- Riddler things, then you're like, yeah, they brought back the Riddler, and that's yeah. kind of what the Riddler is. Like, maybe this is a modern day inter. But when you see like Blofeld, like the things that they do to elicit that reaction of this is the classic Blofeld are so like like it's like oh there's the cat they're so cheap and hollow like all the things they and I think that you realize that when you get to Spectre and you realize like all the reference points that they're using for Blofeld are so like minimal yeah. that you're like oh I guess there really wasn't anything to this character no and and, and I think again we, we we saw the repercussions of that when when Spectre did do that well you know it did very well yeah. in the box office but not as well as Sony or Eon was hoping because everybody was like oh we got the Blofeld rights back and we're gonna finally bring back this arch nemesis and then when you when we watch those movies it's like well he he's basically like just an arch nemesis because he appeared in more than one movie like, if Blofeld was just a one-off character, nobody would think anything of it. The fact that he brought him back for three movies and three different interpretations yeah. of the character. But even, it's funny, because even, like, as small of a role that Blofeld has in uh, Never Say Never Again, what's the one thing that they take from the Eon movies? Is he has a white cat. Right. That's how you know it's Blofeld. Right. And it's basically, that's all it is. And it's like... And he doesn't even have, like, a specific... Pl- like, he's just doing the same shit that all the other villains do. Yeah. Like, when you think about it. So it's like... 
I, so with all that said, that's why he is probably like really low down on the list. And then um, I just like for my last ones that were were too like these are villains that I don't. One of them is like a so bad it's good villain to me, and the other one is more so I, sh- I should mention it because mm. it's just a thing. My so bad it's good villain like look like Colonel Moon and Gustav Graves is so much like part of what's wrong. With it's that a, movie. yeah, it's absurd. It, it's it, absurd. It's, yeah, but I also kind of like. Just the kind of absurdity and like the way that 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 the the portrayal of that character kind of ups the so bad it's good nature of Die Another Day. That mm-hmm. it's like technically on like the bad list, but I also can't like deny I, that he I was going to be an on. He was going to be a mention. And in then, here, yeah. um, and then, uh, walk in in uh, View to a Kill. Um, Why? Is, it's more so like again, it's just the ridiculousness of the plan and sort of like. The fact that the it's microchips, the microchips, and like flooding Silicon Valley, which needs the microchips, and he's also like a horse person, but, possibly. And, 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 and that's the thing about that one; it's more so the script basically kind of throws that character all over the place, gives him a plan that's kind of like somewhat interesting, but just not presented well enough and presented too early to the audience. That's just like yeah. But most of yeah. them, like when you look at it, it's like yeah, they're not great, but most of them are just fine. Yeah. Um, I can talk about some I like though. Um, yeah, let's go to the likes because I think I basically mentioned the main like not great. ones. I want to mention ones that I did enjoy for what they were. Um, um, I liked the original Doctor No. I, I thought that was a very strong introduction at what a Bond villain could be, and mm-hmm. I think that they they direct it very well where they come into the room and you hear the voice first and foremost, and then like and then they slowly reveal the character and it's got a cool look to them. Um, I. At this point, because they were doing something really different with it, I did like uh, Christopher Lee's Scaramanga as being kind of like this big game hunter, but for spies almost. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did like uh, that addition to the uh, to the rogues gallery. Um, I'll always be a Silva fan. Um, I just love Javier Bardem it's in that role. It's a performance thing because I think the same thing with uh, like. I, I know I'm very low on uh, Man with the Golden Gun as a movie, mm-hmm. but I don't doubt that, like, Scaramanga and Christopher Lee make that role iconic. Um, and I would not put him on my bad villains Even list because though he's, Sca- Scaramanga has too many things going on. That's like, the thing about... He's got the gun thing. He's got the nipple thing. He's got the crazy island thing. Yeah. He's, he's, he's getting... He's, the, he's getting the solar gun. Yeah, yeah it's just, like, it's too many is, things. Yeah, it's, it's, like... That's the thing about Scaramanga, and also, again, that's a villain where it's just, like, at the end of the day, just... I think it's an interesting idea that doesn't really go to the its most satisfactory conclusion. Yeah. But I also with with that, it's just like Christopher Lee creates such an aura around that character that despite all those flaws, I can't put him on my bad list. And same thing with Silva, where I know in our viewing of 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 uh, Skyfall that our our overall take on the movie kind of lessened. But again, it's just like when you have a an actor like Harvey or Bardem, just kind of like the, the the rap monologue just makes. Despite what other issues that might arise with Silva when you really delve deep into kind of that movie and that character, that rap monologue in that first scene with Bond yeah. is just so iconic really and good. so well acted between both of them. Because a lot of times, too, it's like the best Bond villains are the ones that have that best chemistry with Bond. And I think that's where even like Dr. No comes in mm-hmm. and what makes that Dr. No appearance so strong is that that dinner scene with, that, with Bond and, and Dr. No and, and Honey Ryder there as well that they play off each other so well in that first kind of tense, like we're talking like about the plan and kind of the, you know, the, the you're crazy and stuff like right. that, that it works. And I think that with Silva, you know, Craig and, and, and Harvey Urban play so well off each other within that first scene that it just creates 
a character that's so memorable that you can't deny that it, it's interesting and, and wonderful. Yeah, and then, and then they give him the whole revenge aspect uh, that that really works for the character that I really like. And speaking of that, like uh, even uh, Trevelyan, um, played by Sean Bean, mm-hmm. like I I really enjoyed uh, seeing that character again. I think that just that's just the character that just worked. Yeah. Um, as a Bond villain. Um, um, I still like Electra King, man. I and the, and the reason I say this is because. The twist really works, and when you realize she's the villain, you're just all in on it. Yeah, I think, and and I give a lot of credit for like a reveal like that working as well as it does, and mm-hmm. you buying into her being the villain. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons like she's and, like and one think, of my I think that whole, favorites. And I, I do think again, it's just like Bond, you know, kind of being suspicious of it right away. So it's not like the complete like what, right? You know, it's more so, but like that she has her suspicions that they're that kind of set it up. So when it happens, it's kind of like oh no way, they're actually doing it. And there's something satisfying about there being the female Bond villain that, you know, they may have had a tryst earlier and they make it work and, uh, and you know, they don't, it, it's not, um, uh, well, man, I, I'm, I'm blanking on the, on, on, on words tonight. Yeah. Um, but it, it's, it's not contrived. Sorry. Right. Like it, it, you don't feel like by the time she has him in that torture chair, like it, you just you it works it, for it you, works and it doesn't movie, feel yeah. contrived that like oh they're getting like the the woman like getting the finally getting the uh, one up on Bond like no it I, and, it works and I do think like what's interesting about Electra King is I would probably classify her as probably the most underrated Bond villain because I think that, I think the thing that happens with the world is not enough is everybody focuses on the Christmas Jones stuff and and kind of like how that plays into the movie um, yeah. And I I think that Electric King is like a villain that I think a lot of people should go back to because I do I would agree that that was one of the ones I really liked upon this uh, viewing. Uh, and one of my all timers is uh, Mr. Elliot Carver, and that's... I was waiting for you to mention it. Here's the reason I will say that. Not only because he, I, I love the Jonathan Price's performance. It's a great he performance. has a great monologue. If we're talking about monologues, he's got a great one. It's in our uh, news he, intro he, for a reason. He works in the movie. But one of the things I really like about him is because here we talked about the physical threat, like that he the, the Bond villains usually aren't. Yeah. Here's a guy who in in if they're in a room together is going to lose to Bond. Like there, you just yeah. don't question it. But still works as the villain. Like you're still entertained. The, you're still jazzed that he's the villain. And it just like that to me is like maybe the big biggest success you can have because it's like Bond could clearly beat this guy, yeah. and yet you still are just having so much fun with him as a villain, and you still view him as like at least the credible enough threat that has to be stopped. But in like a fun, like in a fun like oh let's have fun with this movie type of way. Yeah. Um. So that's always why, and I'm always gonna I'm always gonna love uh, Elliot. That's good. Yeah. All right. I'll go with a little bit more of my favorite. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Um. I, again, this, this might be uh, this, with with our parameters. This might be a little bit cheaty, but I still want to mention it. I think that I mentioned that you know most of the way that Spectre's been portrayed and Blofeld's been portrayed has been you know kind of not great. But I do think that the way that Spectre is portrayed in From Russia with Love is like just so interesting and unique. And I think it's like yes, you have kind of the henchman type characters like like Grant and Rosa Klebb. You know, maybe Rosa being more of kind of the face of that movie. But with like kind of then you know the smart chess guy and Rosa Klebb and they're all responding to kind of the hidden in the shadows Blofeld. I think that that really works, and I think that's the one time that Spectre truly works as as a concept. Yeah, because it is like here's this third party terrorist 
intellectual organization that's good at manipulating everybody. And there's, again, like they're on their way to succeeding and then Bond just kind of wins the day. So I do like that. I mean, I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and mention Goldfinger. Uh, I think that. Yeah, I, I yeah, know. Like yeah. we have the, you know, there's. I know you're not as as hot on it. He, and, I mean, he's fine. Like I mean, I, I yeah. think like it's just like so iconic. I think like he is one of the, for me, one of the best chemistries with Bond. I think all their discussions are great, just well written and so interesting. And I think that like just the whole way that they present Goldfinger is to me in that sense where like in a, in just a straight up fight he's gonna lose to Bond, and and you know they're kind of more so again they're kind of playing it initially as a kind of like you know. He plays the cards and then the golf and just more so like kind of that, you know, that sort of element. But but you have that presence where he kills all those gangster guys and like he's a ruthless villain. Mm-hmm. So I do really enjoy that. Um, I would also go uh, a couple other ones are on a kind of that, that like um, I actually do. I did really like uh, Hugo Drax and Moonraker. Uh, I thought yeah, that, that's not a bad choice. Yeah, that's a good one. I did one. really like Mu- Hugo Drax and Moonraker. Yeah. Um, again, because I think like he has like really good lines where it's like you know he, he keeps trying to kill Bond and he's like you 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 prevent all my amusing deaths for you and all that sort of stuff and I think even in him and with the lasers and stuff and the zero gravity I think is just really and I think like it's just like the way that that plan is presented I think you know he uh, Lionsdale has a real presence with the way that he presents like I'm basically gonna create you know commit genocide and and create a new Eden. But he kind of presents it in kind of a way which, like, you know, you can see why all these people follow him Mm because he just has a cool presence to him. Uh, I'm going to go to bat for uh, uh, Dr. Kananga and Mr. Big in Live and Let Die. Okay. Uh, All right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, those aren't aren't terrible. I'm going to go to bat for him. Yes, there's racist overtones to that character in that movie in a sense. But I think that also it's a character that, again, has the two personalities and – I think that that kind of makes that character interesting. No, but I, I actually – I think that villain works, though. It, yeah, like, no, it like, he does work as a villain. So I wouldn't even, like, say, like – and I and there's nothing, like, really inherently – like, the the other problematic stuff you could argue are just more broad movie stuff. But movie the character stuff. himself, yeah. like, is, um, I think, handled yeah. fairly well. And there's, just, there's a couple more that I, like, I really liked. Um, uh, again – the movie that rose the most on my list in these this movie or this this watch was for your eyes only and i do think that what i like about the christavos villain in that movie is that it's a, such a different angle it's more so on that christopher lee angle where he's just kind of a person for hire that's kind of working on his side and you know and kind of like how they present his relationship with the general gogol character who we've seen in kind of a positive light before I do find that character interesting. Again, sort of like the he's an ally than a villain, which you don't really see that much. Usually you see it maybe with a henchman or two. Um, but you see it with Electric King, you see it with Christavos, and I do think that's great. And um, lastly, as usual, uh, I like both of the Dalton villains. Like mm-hmm. For me, like again, living, uh, for whatever reason, just the, the living daylight speaks to me. And Yorgi in that movie, what I like about him is just his total sleaziness and his total ability to try to get out of anything, which, again, I think just kind of works for kind of the more absurd, lighter tone of that movie. Just kind of how smart, like, how sleazy he is with, like, how he can get out. Like, you know, he's betraying his government, but he's going to be named a hero. Right, he's right. Gonna, you know, he wants to get rid of his girlfriend, and he's gonna, but he's still manipulating her. Uh, even at the end, when he's all caught by, you know, when he's caught by Bond and he's caught by John Reese Davies, he's still like, "Oh, Pushkin, like I was captured." I, right, they had right, taken right. Me. And I just kind of like that performance and that sleaziness to him. 
and I do think that like the relationship that Bond and Sanchez have in License to Kill, I think again, just something a little bit more unique. Um, and I think there's that kind of dynamic where you know what Robert Davi said is that he wanted to play like kind of an evil Bond, and it's a little subtle the way he does it, but I do think that that kind of like the the story of you know this this villain kind of seeing his world crumble underneath him from a guy on the inside like Bond. Mm. I do think that kind of presents it. Otherwise, I, was I like that. Yeah, no, I, I like that reading of it. Yeah, uh, that's good. And so I just kind of like both of those Dalton villains. I think yeah. they stand out. And Otherwise, then like he the- also comes in a package deal with uh, Brad Whitaker, the arms dealer. Oh, oh, Yorgi. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yorgi, right. yeah. But that's again a more henchman type of deal, yeah. I would say. Um, but then I was also the other ones I was just going to mention. Same as you, I think Trevelyan's really up there. I do think like Electric King has really gone up there. And yeah, Par- uh, not Paris. Paris, uh, Paris Carver is a nothing character. Uh, <laughs> but Elliot Carver, I think, again, same thing as what Silva, where it's like it's a character that easily could have fallen to the wayside and mm-hmm. just been a just a fine villain. Yeah. But but Price brings it up to a level where it's just like, even if it's not the deepest villain, because, of the, again, that movie was written like so weirdly, um, even if he's not the deepest villain, he's just so entertaining to watch. Yeah, but it, it the reason it works though is because they're taking like a socio political type of yeah. atmosphere and they really inject like a ton of personality into it. Yeah, like so. I mean, like, I agree. Me, like, like, if he just if he just comes out and being like, yes, and we'll do this, and we'll do this, and we'll get these people on our side. Like, if he was just kind of like that note, but. Jonathan Price's performance is like I can't like that monologue man like, you know what? like he he looks like a like you know how you see like an act you, you know how an actor is really selling it where you just like really buy into the character that that actor is portraying yeah and when you hear him do that monologue you all you see is the definition oh, of God. megalomania and it's like this guy who just I don't even know if he's evil as much as he just gets such a thrill and passion in a out rush. of in yeah. a rush from just owning the media. I would say that Elliot Carver for me is the Godzilla versus Megalon of Bond villains. Like, <laughs> you know, if you really read into it, maybe there's not as much depth as you you think there should be, but right. it's so goddamn entertaining right, that you right. just kind of have to. Enjoy I don't know, it. man. I'll I'll give it a little bit more of the credit. I think it. I mean, probably if you look at thematics and depth, there's probably not. Right. But like in terms of executing what no, that character should be it just same, makes that character it's the same thing like yeah. you know it's just like like uh, elliot carver and jet jaguar you know <laughs> two pieces of the same pot really. I, lo- I i love it i love it um so uh the the way we'll wrap up um is we're gonna talk about the future yeah um what do we want to see from a bond villain I've, going forward i was actually funny enough that we talked about the lack of physically imposing bond villains in that I would like to see like a main Bond villain kind of take that physically imposing step again, right. because because was the last one was probably Russia with Love, right? Like, like the, truly, yeah. Because there's like like I said, like really the from Russia with Love, uh, you know, the Telly Savalas version of Blofeld gets a little bit more physical, and again I kind of include like Trevelyan in there just because again he's like a that's spy, true, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. But like the actual thing I was thinking of, which makes me want to see this type of villain in a Bond movie, is Henry Cavill's character in. Mission Impossible Fall. Yeah, uh-huh. because because like yes, like he, you know he's 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 basically the main villain, kind of working for like the main villain of the last movie, but he's essentially the main antagonist. But the whole thing about that character is that he's essentially like again, he's just kind of when you have that helicopter fight and you have that last fight for the key, the fact that they do get very physical at that moment uh, 
when they're trying to stop those bombs is like so tense because you have a character that matches up with with cruises you know and maybe even outmatches cruises there right whereas like again most of the time you get that with the bond henchman and then the henchman's kind of disposed of and then you okay bond just like kind of kind of kills the villain where i would like to see kind of a more like the, the physically imposing one where, like, I think, like, would create an interesting fight just to create something a little bit new in that mm. dynamic. So I um, should have mentioned this at to- up top, though, and I'm going to kind of, like, spring this on you. Your idea for what you want, which you just mentioned, and who would you want to see cast in it? That's a very interesting question. Yeah. Um, I, I'll have to think on that one a little bit. Okay. So I don't, if you have some ideas. Um, the other one, and I'll, I'll think on these a little bit more. Yeah. Um, I also... I mean, we've talked about this before on the deep dives, but I think it's obvious. I think I really want another female villain, mm. and I would like to see mm-hmm. it. Like Me again, too. in an ideal world, it would be a villain that Bond doesn't necessarily get romantically involved with, or it's not like the twist version. It's actually like the villain he goes after. Now, again, mostly, like most likely, they won't. They will have to do the romantic thing because, again, any director or any writer that's going to be like, oh, "We're going to have a female villain." Is gonna, it's just going to think we have to explore the, the sexual aspect of it. Mm-hmm. But I would like it to be like, because I think the Electric King character really works, but I would like to see it more so like like just a Blofeld-type female character where it's just like, oh, well, this is the person I'm going after. This is like my thing. So those are the really two that I was thinking of that's like they really haven't seen or seen very little of that I would really like to go. But I'll have to think on the... I have... Um, so I have two kind of things I would like to see going forward. And here's the major thing. My number one instinct, because I was trying to think when you kind of said, like, what do I want to see from the future? I was like, all right, I thought I would have, like, a little bit more, like, criteria I would have to right. think about. But it was, that, it was actually pretty simple. I want them to go big again. Like, and, and, I, mean, and I, I think that yeah. the biggest thing is that there's so little defining the villains in the, in the Craig era that I think that it may uh, benefit the franchise to – and by big and elaborate, I don't mean you have to go dumb, but, like – give the villains like a big plan like give like this is what the plan is and i think that and you could say that that's tired or whatever but i think that one of the things that make the bond makes the bond franchise fun is that you have a villain and you know what they want to do right um and ultimately like you know they kind i just don't feel like the craig movies have kind of have done that well into it but the here's the big key to this make it big make it elaborate but don't make it like don't try to force this like but this is why this villain is the most important villain of all like this is the yeah. end all be all of villains like listen this is bond's job and every time you watch a bond villain like a bond villain in some ways is going to be expendable like let's just because that's what it is it's like you're following the the adventures and the missions of James Bond and each villain is a new mission right so just focus on making the character big, elaborate, and fun. He has his mission, and and then and inject that personality into it. And I and I have the character. I would I would have the actor. I would want to see play a Bond villain Go in it. this role. Nicholas Cage. Nicholas Cage going all out in a because think about it. Like he can play like you know kind of cool and villainous, and he could actually be like a a physical threat if they want him to. Mm-hmm. But think about a. Uh, Nick, think about this. I'm thinking about it. A Nicolas Cage, Nicolas Cage scene in a Bond villain. He's got Bond tied up to the chair, and he goes all Nicolas Cage on him. Don't you want to see that? And isn't that enough to get you like invested in Nicolas Cage being an entertaining villain yeah. and an entertaining Bond villain? So that's what I would want. The second thing that I would want, 
um, is um, something that I think that they could do is make somebody who could meet Bond personality wise. I mm-hmm. think like really like um, if if you're not going to like entertain me with like the big uh, nature of of a Bond villain, maybe uh, like you know uh, redirect a little bit and make him kind of like a more fun like a. Uh, uh, like chemistry with, yeah. with 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 Bond, and I actually there's not too much to say about it, but I do kind of know a character, uh, an actor that I would love to see play a role like this. Yes, Denzel Washington. Ooh, that's a nice choice. Denzel Wat, and and I'm talking about smooth talking Denzel Washington. Like, oh baby, it's gonna be okay. Like, it's like it's it's like ah, oh, you know, you you know that laugh he does. Yeah, you know, like when he goes like. <laughs> <laughs> like that, that yeah. like I want that kind like, of like training day kind of demo. yeah like if you get like training training day Denzel Washington in a Bond role and just give him like the class honestly if you made him any of the villains from any of the Craig movies but you had him go full Denzel Washington yeah. and then like make a and then give like even though this kind of goes against what I said but like give the characters a connection and not like a big like retroactive retconning connection but a connection where it's like oh like these are buddies you know what kind of like shades of uh, never say never again with the villain in that remember that there were those those moments when he had bond tied up and he's like you know what you are actually a pretty good spy like yeah. it's like you almost got me i'm going to do you a favor think about that type of character but with denzel mm. that's what i would like to see yeah so right. but the biggest one for me is like go big uh, give them a defined mission and don't try to overthink why that they're the villain All is right. basically what I want to say. So I, I kind of have... oh oh and no more no more. I'm a king of satellites. Yeah, and I know computers and that's why I'm evil. None of that. I, I don't want any of that anymore. All right, so I've definitely been thinking. Mm-hmm. All right, so my physically imposing actor that I would like to see as a Bond villain is actually very like when I saw the name, I was like, I really wanted to see this person as a villain. Okay, and that's Chris Hemsworth. I think like if you did like a big, Ooh, yeah, big, I like it. I like the thing it. Is, like what I like about Chris Hemsworth as like a Bond villain choice is again you have that big personality. He's got like the accent, so you can you know kind of trick people into. So the- you so he's keeping the Australian yes, accent. Okay, yeah, yeah. He'll yeah. do that, and then I also think that it's again like a personality. Like the little bit that we saw of him like possessed in ghostbusters was like so fun and i don't mm-hmm. know if i want to get him that crazy for bond but just again kind of that kind of weird chris hemsworth personality mm. and like go for it yeah is he funny is he funny hemsworth? i think he, i think he's a funny yeah but i but but again you do that thing where he's funny but then he kills like a henchman yeah like he like snaps like a henchman dude that would be such a good role for him because he hasn't really had a role like that I don't think ever yeah. so i think that's actually a good choice because it, it also gives us something new all right and my female villain, it's kind of hard because a lot of the female villains I instantly, or like the female actress I would want to do it, have like already been villains in like these types of movies. Like, you know, like Charlie's Theron, but she's like in Fast and the Furious. Yeah. And, and like, you know, like, you know, Kate Blanchett's been, you know, Ragnarok and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But I do think there there is someone who's been in these other movies that I would really want to see on a full on villainous role. Uh, the complete her spy trilogy, her fly tr- spy. Oh trilogy. wait, are you gonna say who I think you're gonna say? Vanessa Kirby. Of course, dude. Come on. She would be awesome. As like she a, would be awesome because like the, also the thing is like because she's also been like, you know, she's um kind of semi villain ally in Fallout, mm-hmm. and she plays that very well. And then she's kind of a it, you know kind of a, a troubled hero character 
in uh, Hobbs and in Shaw. Hobbs and Shaw. But to see her take on a full on like villain role with like th- like this is kind of that that tinge of the craziness. Yes. Um, but she can also pull her, pull herself in. I think that would be a really fun casting. No, choice. no, that's 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 really good. I like both of the, I like both of those choices. Honestly, can't like this new canon just be all these villain choices we just mentioned? Absolutely. Can you imagine we get a Bond franchise where the villains in it are Vanessa Kirby, Chris Hemsworth, Denzel Washington, and we wrap it all up with Nick Cage? <laughs> and Nick Cage would just add to that like legacy of like just wanting to be in everything yeah and i honestly you saw that interview right by the way oh yeah oh yeah that's a strange interview if anybody wants to go read the nicholas cage interview it's so weird remember when he's like talking about how he gets like inspired like he's like sometimes you just gotta like if you're like playing like a demon with like a with fire on his head you take like an ancient egyptian like statue and put it in your jacket and then the interviewer's just like wait did you do that <laughs> like he just says stuff he's like well not everybody needs to do it <laughs> but he's just talking about like he's like literally like he just wants people to have like these Nicolas Cage nights where he's just like I want to see Nicolas Cage in something and they have so many options and, I, and a Bond movie would be a good option I there. actually and I'd be, will, I'd be willing to risk that last Bond movie being terrible and campy and stupid as long as Nick, Nicolas Cage yeah. is in it I, I wouldn't mind that Um. so despite what we have kind of thought is maybe not being like that strong of a legacy. I mean, did we really talk about like why we don't think like the legacy is that strong? Did we, we really, really touch- haven't touched on it because we started kind of getting into it. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. That was the big thing. Cause well, I, but this I is- thought our big breakdown was going to be how like the bond villains don't actually have that much presence in those movies. Yeah. But it's also, I think that there is that legacy and I think there are those characters that we enjoy and we can read into that. Like maybe they're, is a little bit more like as a whole, maybe it's weird because maybe on an individual level, like there's maybe not as much depth as you think, but like as a whole, there's still that legacy to those characters that kind of create that world. Well, I think that's kind of what we're getting at is despite our personal feelings of in practice in these movies, because I think I can succinctly say that on average, we're not that impressed well, with the how the villains like are always even, portrayed. Like my favorite Bond movie is still Spy Who Loved Me, and I would call Carl Stromberg as an okay villain. Right. It's like a, a Blofeld light that works for that movie. And a lot of times that's how kind of the Bond villains sort of work. Right. Is that more so than anything not, even the ones I really like, they kind of, at the end of the day, like, again, I do really like Christavos in For Your Eyes Only, but really at the end of the day, he works for that movie. And right. that's what kind of puts him up there. Um, but even but like, at the same time, we can't deny that it is a trope and it is a legacy uh, and a piece of iconography that has permeated um, all of entertainment. Yeah, and, and it's one of the so, things that makes the Bond franchise kind of survive, despite yeah. the fact that you know maybe people have the misconceptions that they have yeah. about like what the Bond villains actually are. But like when you think of the Bond movies, it's well, like, the Bond you know, villain in many ways is very much like what we talk about, like people who think that a Godzilla movie, Godzilla is just rampaging the entire time. Yeah. Like, and then when you go back and watch it, like, oh, in practice, like there'll be an hour that Godzilla is not even on screen. Mm-hmm. So like in practice, when you watch these movies, yeah, the Bond villain is there, but they're not like the big fleshed out threat that you think yeah. that they are all the mm-hmm. time. Uh, so you're right. It's more of like an in practice thing, but you know. But in many ways, this is the power of these movies is, yeah. is and, that and they the, leave these marks regardless. And the fact that like this again, leaving with the Bond girls and the Bond villains, is the fact that you have so many of them that you have this long legacy, so many years. I mean, Bonds has been around for over 50 years yeah. now. That you have just so many choices. So the ones that do iconic just stick around, but you just have like you never know when that next like. 
what one's going to stick. Yeah. Well, Nick, it's time to breach the water, take a deep breath, because we just got finished uh, another deep dive. Actual, um, like, diving terminology. Yeah. I, I, I was trying that. How to, how to work. What'd you think? It's okay. Yeah. I got it in there. Yeah. Like, it's not bad. My sister actually does deep diving, yeah. so, like, I'll have to have her listen to this and give us notes on that. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, so, anyway, um, uh, that is our thoughts on uh, that James was, Bond villains. That was so much fun. Yeah. Like, that, like... I thought it was going to be a very interesting episode, but it kind of turned out even more interesting than I thought it would be. Yeah. And that's what these deep dives are all about, that you're always kind of overachieving. <laughs> all right, everybody. Well, I hope you we hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, and uh, that uh, concludes the Bond half of, of the month. as of we the month of August. And then we are going uh, into the Godzilla half of August. So until next time, everybody, thank you for listening. And, of course, keep on deep diving. 